all good things. Well, not actually, because we already did a podcast about that episode. But seriously, it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye to Pasadena. Goodbye to my friends at Caltech. And goodbye to my co-host for Strange New Worlds, Elise. I'm moving on to the University of Washington, and this is the last recording that I did in Pasadena, California, before I drove up the I-5 to Seattle. On the way, I made a pit stop in Lesouches, France, and you'll hear a podcast from that experience. I know, it's kind of a, a weird pit stop to have, going to France on the way from Pasadena to Seattle, but I did it anyway, and uh, had some great science and Star Trek chats there. Um, but this is really the last one from Pasadena, and I just wanted to extend a huge amount of gratitude and love to everybody who has joined me in starting this project, whether being a guest on this podcast, giving their expertise, telling their Star Trek stories, and yes, of course, to Elise as well for helping me create this project and set us on the course to the amazing frontiers of the intersection between science and Star Trek. After over a year and over 40 episodes of Strange New Worlds, it seemed only right that the very last episode in Pasadena should be between me and Elise, just watching a random Star Trek episode and seeing what science we could talk about from it. Um, this is because probably some of the most fun episodes that I've recorded were just me and Elise talking about astrobiology. You may remember we did sort of a, a loosely defined astrobiology miniseries in the middle of Strange New World's run when I was teaching the astrobiology class at Caltech and Elise was my teaching assistant and guest lecturer. So we had a lot of fun astrobiology-related conversations that we did around Star Trek episodes, often Star Trek episodes from which I would show clips of in class. And so this time we just decided, let's pick a random episode and let's talk about it because we love Star Trek and we love science and we knew we'd find something great in there. So without further ado, let's jump to the conversation. Nice socks, Elise. <laughs> these are my boldly ghost socks. I think I've actually had these since freshman year. Uh, Clara got them for me. Clara McFarland, yeah. Yep. She played a random science officer in that musical. Yep. And yeah. you were a red shirt, so naturally those are red shirt socks. Yeah, there were gold and blue ones, but they've been eaten by the monsters that live inside of washing and drying machines over the years and so only these remain isn't it ironic that the red shirt socks have lasted the longest (laughs) out of all of the socks yeah you know you would expect like the first time you you wash your star trek socks right you put them all in there you've got your three pairs and then everyone comes out fine except one of the red shirt socks is gone but it actually worked out the complete opposite way in this case funny enough but, you know, the universe is exacting some poetic justice in my sock drawer here for all of those nameless red shirts. So today, for our final podcast together in Pasadena, uh. <laughs> Elise and I decided to do something we've never done before and not have a plan going in, choose a random Star Trek episode and try to tease out some science from it after enjoying the episode. So, Elise, being a fan of Q, what what is it about Q that uh, that you really enjoy? I think it's his, he's so mercurial, and 
I mean, I, I don't have the next-gen episodes memorized or anything. I pretty much know what's going to happen in all of the original series episodes at this point, because I've seen them enough, but I still don't really remember exactly what happens in all these ones. So, when Q shows up, all I know is, like, at some point, there's going to be a Napoleon outfit or a mariachi band, but I don't know when, and I don't know how, and I don't know how we're going to get there. And just the idea of Picard basically having to deal with God, but not as, like, not in the philosophical religious sense, but just in the, like, oh, I'm bored and I'm going to smite you sort of sense. Just, it's so funny to watch. And also, the one we happened to pick, I didn't know this, but this is the one that's, like, the, the facepalm Picard meme was in there. I feel like that just sort of sums up what it must be like to deal with Q, and it's just very fun. Maybe, maybe it's a little bit of projecting, too, because there are so many things that we all don't have control over that just sort of come into our lives and start mucking things up. Um, and seeing that sort of personified as this like goofy man who can just snap his fingers and cause problems for everybody, um, but then it just as easily dissolve them. It's it's like seeing the tides of chaos just embodied in this average-looking middle-aged dude, and it's kind of funny. And also knowing the whole arc with Q too, sort of knowing how he begins all of Next Gen and how he ends it too is. It's nice, but mostly I think it's just the comedy value of seeing the reality that chaos reigns so supreme in life manifest as this completely vanilla-looking guy. Like, it's, it's great, and he's acted so well. And I like you a lot. He's a good foil to Picard. So for those of you who are next-gen buffs, I think we've dropped enough hints for you to perhaps identify this episode. Q and the Picard facepalm gif. Yeah, um, it's beautiful. It's there, and so if you know it, shout it out loud to nobody in particular. That's right! He's it's a Dora the Explorer moment right here. <laughs> <laughs> Deja Q is the episode from the third season of Star Trek The Next Generation. And so to briefly summarize the plot of this episode, the Enterprise is trying to rescue planet Brielle 4 from a natural disaster, which is that its asteroidal moon is about to come crashing down onto this planet. And they're in the middle of this predicament when all of a sudden Q drops in on the Enterprise bridge completely naked. And chaos ensues. And the funny thing is that this time Q isn't really causing the chaos, but he is the chaos. The Q continuum has kicked him out of their dimension or continuum or whatever it is that they are, stripped him of his powers and put him in this human shell sort of as punishment for being Q, for being what he is and going around the universe and causing mischief. And he, in his split second decision, made the choice to become human and to get deposited on the Enterprise. And we later find out that this is not because Q necessarily really likes humans, but because he knows humans will defend him from the numerous species that he happens to have irked during his time as a vengeful, mercurial, or just simply chaotic deity, essentially, going around the universe and just causing problems for people for fun. And this does end up coming back to bite him because there is an alien species, that the catamaran, that show up, and they try to hurt him, they try to kill him, and just as he predicted, the Enterprise crew protects him from this because that's what humans do. They forgive people, even if they don't like them, they protect them, they don't want to see suffering. This is something that comes up a lot. And so what ends up happening is the Enterprise is having to deal with this attack on Q and with this moon falling into the planet that they're trying to stop from happening. 
they can't figure out how to do that. And ultimately, it comes down to Hugh to make the choice to sacrifice himself, essentially, to allow the mission to succeed. And a lot of how he came to that decision was through his interactions with Data, which I thought was really interesting, because Data is this android, he's not human, and he's on the outside of it all. Picard assigns him, it seems sort of by chance, or just on a whim, to be sort of Q's guardian while he's on the ship. And Q ends up learning a lot about what it means to be human from this character who's not human. Yeah, I really enjoyed the Q-Data dynamic, definitely one of the highlights of the show. I guess they were just together a lot because they were trying to solve the technicalities of saving this planet from its imminent disaster, but Q really took to Data as what he called Data uh, at the end, a professor of humanity, which is a really cool position for Data to be in because, um, you know, Q has just been reduced to being human and turns to this not quite human entity to teach him how to be human because Data is on that track, on that journey himself. Yeah, and I think the idea of a professor of the humanities is really a good one in this case. Because that's really Data's role in this series, is to be a mirror to see ourselves reflected in. And to, like a professor would do, synthesize information and summarize it and collect it. And then take, take it further, come up with inferences and conclusions about it regarding the human experience and what it means to be human. He's, he's essentially creating a compilation, uh, what would be analogous to a compilation of history or literature with analysis, rather than forcing us to just drown in the primary sources. And it's great to see this get recognized sort of explicitly in Q, who needs this sort of synthesized, summarized version of humanity, who needs that outside opinion because he's not ready to just jump into the primary sources. He's not ready to just learn what it means to be human by observing humans and, and experiencing it for himself. And so there's a lot of commentary on sort of mercy and forgiveness being a uniquely human thing and how that's important and special that comes through with the interactions with Data and selflessness in particular, which ultimately manifests in Q's decision to, to go out. As he says, he'll have a coward's death at least, um, even if it's selfless, but he, at least he won't be bored. So he kind of tries to play it off as not being selfless, but that's truly what it is um, to the point at which it grabs the notice of sort of his supervisor from the Q continuum, who's like, well, if they noticed you were committing a selfless act, it'd be, it'd be centuries of bureaucracy that I don't want to deal with discussing whether or not we should have taken you back into the continuum, so I'm just going to do it. And he, Q seems to sort of default on his selflessness as soon as his omnipotence is restored in some ways, and that he goes to punish the catamaran for, for coming after him, and then the Q continuum guy sort of shows up and stops him from doing that. He realizes he should probably back off, um, but he does go and give Data a gift sort of in return for, for guiding him through this whole thing. And that was actually, I think, one of the best scenes in the whole show. It was also just really funny. Yeah, Q gives Data the opportunity to experience the feeling of laughter for the first time. And it was just such a wonderful, pleasurable scene to watch. Elise and I were just laughing along with Data because, I mean, what a wonderful gift to give somebody like Lieutenant Commander Data who's aspired to feel and to engage in that richness of humanity. And Q is the one who gives that to him after all the Data did for Q. Mm -hmm. 
So let's turn to some of the science that we picked up on in this episode. I mean, like any Star Trek episode, it's got its share of technobabble dump that occurs, and a lot of that happens sort of within the first five minutes of the episode when they're discussing the problem with this moon and trying to quickly get rid of some of the audience's initial reactions to how maybe they could fix this. Like, why don't you just blow it up? Why don't you do these things? So that they would be forced into having the Enterprise in a situation that was difficult for them. Um, So essentially what the problem was is that they had this asteroidal moon, which is a term they throw out that sort of stuck in our heads when we were watching it, because it's a real thing. There are plenty of moons in the solar system that are captured asteroids. And this moon, by appearance, looks basically like an asteroid. Yeah. And we know that our planet Mars in our solar system has two moons that look very much like asteroids. They're named Phobos and Deimos. And it's a little controversial, well, rather controversial, whether or not they actually are captured asteroids or these asteroidal moons, as Star Trek would call them. But it is pretty accepted that Phobos will eventually collide with Mars. Um, Or as it goes in and its orbit gets closer and closer to Mars, the tidal forces, the force of gravity pulling on this moon as it goes around its closer and closer orbit to Mars, will eventually like, stretch it out and break it into a ring, um, into, into fragments that would form a ring around the planet, which is something they actually talk about as a possibility for this moon in the Star Trek episode. And they, they sort of make it sound like the tidal forcing is going to happen just as it's entering the atmosphere and colliding because they say, oh, it will be resistant to tidal forces. But really, the moon obviously was resistant to tidal forces since it didn't break up into a ring as it could have. It's a little weird to say that, oh, in this last one orbit it's going to do, it will resist the tidal forces and not break up. But they say that it has this iron crystalline structure, or this ferrous crystalline structure. Ferrous just means iron. That'll make it resistant to the tidal forcing. Whereas Phobos is mostly just made out of ordinary rock. It has a composition similar to Mars's surface. So it's not this hard, solid, iron... Crystalline matrix. Crystalline thing. (laughs) And um, so for those of you who are wondering a little bit more about what what tidal forces mean in a planetary dynamic setting. Yeah, I didn't really explain that too well. It's basically just the differential of gravity pulling on one side of the object versus another. So the gravitational pull on the closer side of the object is going to be just a little bit stronger than on the back side. And so this differential can actually start to rip things apart. It's very similar to why you may have heard that you would get spaghettified if you were falling into a black hole. It's because the black hole is so powerful that it's pulling on your toes a lot harder than it's pulling on your head. And so this actually happens for things very close to planets as well, because planets have a lot of gravitational pull to them. So in order for those tidal forces to work over time to break up a moon into a ring system, you have to orbit the planet multiple times at a very close distance to it so that you experience this pulling apart as you're going around this planet very closely through that asteroid that will eventually break the asteroid up and turn it into a ring system or scatter a whole bunch of debris as data suggests when Riker's like, why don't we just blow it up? Well, if you, if you make a whole bunch of debris and then that all falls on the planet, it's the same amount of mass. Um, so that could also cause devastation. Instead of one giant impactor, you'd have many smaller ones that could still cause big problems. Which is something that comes up a lot when people sort of think about protecting the Earth from asteroids. There's all these movies of people blowing them up and then all of a sudden they're just gone. But that's not how conservation of mass works. All of that mass is still there. And unless you've got some good way to get rid of it, 
it's still going to fall onto the planet. We'll talk about how the Enterprise and Q try to get rid of this asteroid in just a sec, but uh, before we move on to the solution, I just also wanted to mention that although Phobos and Deimos are rocky type moons, not these solid chunks of iron, there are solid chunks of iron in the asteroid belts, and we've never actually been to one, but we will soon. There's a NASA mission called Psyche that is planned to launch, crossing our fingers, for 2022. And for the first time, we will study the geology of a mostly iron world. Yeah, we've seen fragments of these things fall to Earth. If you've ever been to a space museum, you've probably seen what's called an iron nickel meteorite. Um, They're the kind that are easy to find if you go out in the desert or anywhere where there's not a lot of rocks. There's these black, heavy objects that just beep metal detectors like nothing else because they're just chunks of metal. Um, And that's the picture that they showed in the Star Trek episode that basically the image of the moon looked pretty much like an iron nickel meteorite. And so, I mean, they, they backed that up. They said it was a ferrous iron matrix. So that, you know, ferrous is iron. It works. <laughs> way to go, Star Trek. Yeah, way to get Honestly, the science was pretty on point. They were using the right words and everything in the beginning here. Even if the, the tenses and the technicalities made it seem a little off. Yeah. They even have this nice diagram now that we're looking at it. Of the orbit? Yeah, there's actually a really nice graphic in the back of the Briellian scientists uh, where they have these orbits, these ellipses getting gradually and gradually smaller, um, showing the decay of the orbit, which is a really nice graphic touch. Really nice. Okay, so let's jump to the solution for how to stop this asteroidal moon from crashing into this planet. Change the gravitational constant of the universe. Easy, right? OQ. That's actually kind of not a great thing to do unless you can do it very locally, locally. which um, I'm sure Q could do, but he was not very specific. If you change the gravitational constant of the universe, not only would this asteroid cease to uh, crash into this planet, but you'd get all sorts of mayhem across the universe. Stars wouldn't work right. Planets wouldn't work right. Apples falling from trees wouldn't work right. That's the most important thing. Basically, just solar systems wouldn't cohere. Galaxies might fall apart or collapse. There's actually been a lot of work done that's showing how sort of weirdly unique the gravitational constant that we have is for making sure all these structures that we see in the universe actually function the way they should or need to do so in order for intelligent life to exist in any way that we'd be familiar with it. So yeah, Q's idea for disrupting the gravitational constant everywhere, probably not the best idea, but you know, like Mike said, Q could probably do it locally. So instead, the solution that the crew descends upon, uh, being inspired actually by Q's sort of offhanded (laughs) comment, uh, was to extend a warp bubble around this object, but they didn't quite have the power to encapsulate the entire moon in their warp bubble. They sort of had a warp bubble that encased part of the moon, and that was enough to change what they called the inertial mass of the moon, such that they could actually pull it with their tractor beam. And that's some actually accurate technobabble, huh? The, the inertial mass of something. Uh, what is mass? The mass is basically a resistance to acceleration, uh, which we call inertia. Inertia is actually the way that we measure the mass of things. And we also measure what is called the gravitational mass. That's what you do when you step on a scale. And uh, I don't know, I guess these days scales are mostly electronic, so you just see numbers go up. And it's actually a kind of weird coincidence that the inertia 
inertial mass of an object and the gravitational mass of an object are one and the same. And this is central to Einstein's theories of, of relativity. We don't know too much about how warp technology works, but in some way it bends space and it must have bended space in such a way that it made that part of the asteroid that was inside of the bubble have less resistance to being accelerated, which Mike, Mike was just saying that it ties in with the theory of relativity. So it, it seems that they looked in the right place for inspiration. I mean, it's hard to know whether or not it's feasible because it's a completely imagined technology and it's not explained, but they're using these warp drives to move the ship in a way that it shouldn't be able to move based on the way that inertia works and acceleration works with relativity. So it, it makes total sense that they'd be able to use it to move something else in a way that doesn't make sense with physics. Yeah, at least they didn't turn to spores. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, the tardigrade could have showed up and didn't help them instead of Q. I, I still want somebody to uh, draw Q riding the tardigrade and oh tweet it God, at me, sure. please. I mean, it'd be like a five-minute Photoshop job, right? Come on, somebody. All right, so let's talk about the calamarane, these non-corporeal beings well, actually, they sort of did have form. They said that they were made of mostly ionized gas yeah, or plasma. <laughs> and, um, you know, who knows how that works? We'll let it slide for now. You know, I want to believe stars are alive. Plasma beings. Cool. I mean, they do, you know, dissipate. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, that's okay. a subject for another time. But, okay, let's, let's, let's just say that there could be clouds of highly intelligent alien consciousnesses. Um and this actually reminds me of something, <laughs> a really funny thing that happened at the Star Trek convention. The uh, Discovery cast was on stage and they were just fooling around because they're, you know, young, hip people. And I forget why, but Mary Wiseman, who plays Tilly, was asked about something about Tilly's future. And she was like, you know, I really want Tilly to get in a relationship, but like not with a humanoid, but with like a ball of gas or a oh ball of sound. And her parents would be like, I can't believe you're dating a ball of gas. And she would just be like, you guys just don't get gas. <laughs> so um, this, uh, this, this ionized cloud of consciousness reminded me of Tilly's future partner. That is pretty good. That sounds like Tilly too. Indeed. You know, I, I think we'll get there at this Star Trek universe. I mean, if you have intelligence like that, especially if Tilly would be the kind of person who'd be more interested in this sort of intellectual engagement, maybe it's a really funny cloud of gas. You know, you, you don't know. <laughs> uh, but the thing that struck me was that when they were scanning it, they were basically looking for complexity, which is something that we talk about a lot when we're considering life and how to look for it in the universe. And there's this idea that's being bandied around right now that instead of looking for specific biosignature molecules like, oh, is there methane in the atmosphere? Or, oh, is, is there CO2 or, or oxygen? And these are useful ways to look for life, but not necessarily the end-all say-all. That instead of doing that, you could just look for complexity, not bias yourself by looking for any kind of anything we consider biological, but just look for how complex the system is, how complex the planet is, what's going on, and somehow quantifying that and using that as a way to sort of guide how you're looking for life. And that's what they did. Let's take a listen at what they actually said. Captain, sensors are picking up a cloud of energetic plasma bearing 341, mark 20, range 12 kilometers and closing. On screen. Energy patterns are reading as highly organized. A life form? 
Attempt to make contact, Mr. Wolf. Receiving the signal, sir. On speaker. Computer analyzed signal. Signal patterns indicate intelligence. Unable to derive necessary reference to establish translation matrix. So they said that the energy patterns ended up looking very organized. Yep. Now, when we look for life, because we're not looking for plasma-based life, we wouldn't quite look at the energy patterns, but we would look at the chemical patterns or the chemical networks that are being displayed. So as Elise said, you know, looking for very specific chemicals like oxygen or methane or carbon dioxide might not be all that great at determining whether or not there's life because we don't know exactly what kinds of metabolisms these life forms are performing and at what rates. Yeah, and also they tend to be things that in many cases by themselves can be produced very easily without life. Exactly. And so instead, don't look for something that's super specific, but take in a broader picture. And it turns out that if you examine all of the chemicals that are interacting in a biologically active system, there are certain network patterns that are very different from the chemical networks of a completely abiotic system. And especially on Earth, we see that biological systems have what are called nodes. So if you tried to map out all of the chemical species and drew lines between them that shows how they transform into one another or how they react together, in biology, you have these nodes from which a lot of lines are coming out. That means that a single molecule is responsible for reacting with or producing a bunch of other molecules. And this happens because biology has a specificity to it, and it's utilizing molecules in abundances that are not just randomly distributed or in equilibrium. And this causes a different kind of what's called network topology or pattern if you were to plot all of these things out. One really interesting pattern is if you look at the distribution of how common certain molecules are by how much they weigh. In an abiotic system, you tend to see a correlation rather strongly between how large a molecule is and how abundant it is. Whereas in biological systems, you see weird abundances of molecules at different weights that you wouldn't necessarily expect there to be so much of it based on how much it weighs. You can think about something like Rubisco, which is an enzyme that plants use, and it's super, super common. It's one of the most common molecules around, but it's big and complex, and you wouldn't really expect to see so much of something that large just in a biotic setting, because in relation to the abundance of everything else around it, it's just so out of whack. And so using these big picture biodetection strategies, people have proposed missions to go and look for abstract patterns in the different chemicals on, say, for instance, Enceladus. So there is a mission proposal called the Enceladus Life Finder that would take what's called a mass spectrometer and fly this mass spectrometer through the plumes of Enceladus and try to measure the different organics there. And if they found what Elise was talking about, this strange distribution of organic molecules at strange weights... Or just weights that you wouldn't expect to see on 
a random distribution. And it's you don't even know what molecule this is specifically. You just know its weight. Yeah. And so you can do this to sort of have a blind search for life. You're not looking for a specific fingerprint. You're just looking for the pattern that life creates. And Star Trek did this brilliantly in the episode Deja Q, where they looked at the energy patterns rather than the chemical patterns of this thing and found that they were highly non-random and deduced that this cloud of plasma was indeed alive and intelligent. Yeah, they were able to look at the signal that the plasma cloud sent them uh, somehow, and they were looking at it and they were able to even tell that it must be some kind of intelligence we don't know what, which is exactly what we would be looking for, except it's some kind of life we don't know what kind. That's the power of this sort of complexity-driven technique is you don't have to know what you're looking for to find something. You don't have to be biased by looking for Earth-like life or looking for molecules to be acting in the same way they do here. You just have to look for complexity in this pattern that we'd expect to see for a system that does what life does. Well, look at us. Back to astrobiology. Yeah, it always no, ends here. Nobody even asked us no to talk about this. About <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, it's Star Trek. It's, it's an exercise it's full in astrobiology. Of, full of astrobiology. Yeah, somebody should teach a class called Star Trek and Life in the Universe or something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, somebody should do that, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mr. Dr. Seek Mike. out new life and new civilizations. Astrobiology 101. Yeah, well, you know, we have an astrobio class, but I don't know that we have a Star Trek astrobio. You put as much of it in there as you could. It's, I'll it's, say that for you. It's, yeah, it's actually a very interesting concept to think about as, as educators. At the Star Trek convention that happened a couple of, well, last month, there was actually a professor of humanities, I think, of communication who used Star Trek episodes in a class. It was all about Star Trek. They would watch an episode or a movie, and then there would be like writing assignments afterwards to analyze things related to fandom and culture. Um, I don't remember exactly what the specifics were, but one could easily do that with the sciences as well. I mean, Star Trek is full of tons of philosophical and ethical quandaries to think and write about, but um, same with science. You say you mentioned the philosophy part. My mom's actually taking a philosophy of Star Trek class right now, sort of just so that she could tell Mike she was doing it. <laughs> it was the cutest thing ever. She's like, Elise, I'm taking a Star Trek philosophy class, and I'm going to send Mike all of my materials. I was just like so heartwarmed. Um, but yeah, it'd be really cool to see, especially for sort of that kind of continuing education course for like getting the public interested in science. I mean, it might be hard to teach significantly meaningful quantum physics or something using the warp drive stuff that they bring up in Star Trek. Heisenberg compensators, yeah. though. <laughs> I mean, you can introduce concepts. Um, you can definitely introduce concepts. And I think especially for the sort of public outreach and just getting people in the know about what a science topic is rather than necessarily interacting with it in the same way that scientists do, but in the way that's important for everyone to do, it'd be so powerful. And it's already done that. I mean, a lot of scientists are in science because they were just kids who liked Star Trek or adults who liked Star Trek. Yeah, that's exactly who we are. And that's exactly the mission of this podcast, actually, to engage the public, people who love Star Trek, who love science fiction and want to learn more about the science, the real science in it. That's really who we're reaching. And I hope that over the first, what, 49 episodes of this podcast Man, it's now. it's really been that long. Um, I mean, I haven't been in all of them. We've but... achieved that. And so, Elise, you've been 
my right hand, my co-host for so many of these episodes. You helped me kick this thing off. And it's so sad to be leaving you now. Um, and this is all because Mike I've been kicked out of Caltech. <laughs> yeah, kicked out of the C continuum. The C continuum, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, so, you know. Did you just see? <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't have the same ring to it. I'm heading up to the University of Washington in Seattle, and there I will be pursuing a postdoc studying exoplanets, so strange new worlds. Elise is staying here in Pasadena. I'm staying right where I am. Nothing's changed. <laughs> She's going to be a senior at Caltech. Yeah, that's wow. changed, I guess. That's wow. pretty weird to think about. Look at that. I was just a freshman three years ago. So, yeah, I think that um, this podcast will probably continue to live on. Again, we do this out of the goodnesses of our own hearts in our own spare time. We're very busy people. So, um, you know, you may have noticed that this podcast comes out sporadically, but that's just the way it is. You know, it's chaos. It's like Q, right? It just comes in and out whenever it decides to. Yeah. (laughs) When I'm in Seattle, I think it'll be difficult because of the way that I like to do this podcast, yeah. where I sit down across from the person that I'm interviewing, to have you continue to be the co-host, but you can be a recurring guest star, uh, yeah. like your favorite cue. Oh, I'm man. sure we'll I'll Skype. Just pop in. We'll yeah, we'll Skype all the time. You'll <laughs> pop in randomly on me, uh, hopefully not naked. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's just, let's just hope I don't get that drunk. And we'll uh, continue to talk about all things science and Star Trek. I mean, the next season of Star Trek Discovery is going to come out in a few months, and there's still hundreds and hundreds of Star Trek episodes that we haven't watched together. So it'll keep happening. Any last words for our audience? <laughs> um, I... I mean, I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to this because it's been really fun to do. And um, I hope that I haven't blathered on and been too confusing at times because I know this happens. It's really been great to see the positive response that Mike has been getting to the show. And it's just been awesome to know that there are people who are using Star Trek in this way as a launch pad for getting into science and understanding concepts that um, you might be interested in if you just knew about them and Star Trek just introduces you to them in the, in, in such an accessible way. And really these, these conversations about science really do belong to everyone. And however it is that the story gets out there, however it is that it gets told, it's important and it's part of your world and it's part of our world too. And it's been great to share that with you guys. So thanks, I guess. <laughs> oh, um, actually before we go, I wanted to uh, give you a gift. No. <laughs> I don't have mine here for you. It's it's gonna be waiting for you when you get to your house. You it's, shipped it to me? Yeah, I wanted to have a package arrive at your apartment that said Dr. Michael Wong. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. This is for you, Elise. <gasps> Can you identify it? It's serpentinite. Yeah. And that has a special meaning to us because of oh. the kind of science that we <sighs> engage in uh, on a That's weekly like so basis. meaningful, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's literally like the life-giving 
rock according to a theory for the emergence of life that we've been embedding ourselves in for the past several years, trying to learn more about it and contribute to the discourse as much as we can every single week at our astrobiology meetings. So serpentinite comes from serpentinization, which is a process that happens on the bottom of the seafloor where water alters ultramafic rock and releases hydrogen, which is possibly, quite possibly, the fuel that... Um, was consumed at the origin of life, and um, wow. and so Elise, you've uh, you've sort of fueled my academic and intellectual and just fun life at Caltech, and so serpentinite sort of represents that to me, both you and the science that we both love thinking about. So. That's uh, that's for you to add to your rock collection. Wow, I am so glad that I correctly identified that <laughs> as quickly as I did. But yeah, wow, that's that's super meaningful, and this will be on my desk forever. So, thank you so much. I could not have asked for anything better than that. Actually, um, it's just this green rock, and it's perfect. Sisters of the Continuum have taken me back. I'm immortal again! Omnipotent again! Swell. Live long and prosper, everyone. I have been and shall always be your friend. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel like celebrating. I don't! All right. All of it. 